The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace-Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here is our speaker. Okay, let's have a word of prayer, and we will look at our Bible study. Father, we're thankful for uh, the opportunity to be together, thankful for the food we were able to share, and now able to share in the food that is your word. And we ask for discernment as we go through these things tonight, and we thank you for it. Amen. Um, we were going to be in John 14, but we're going to start tonight over in Exodus chapter 25. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 25, what we're going to be looking at in John 14, 6 is the statement that I am the way. I, sh oh, I should have left my t-shirt on that I had on earlier. I am the way, the truth, and the life, one of my favorite t-shirts. Had, had to order another one of those. So, What? It would have been cold. I would have been cold in that, yeah, probably. Um, but I... But I, I really like that verse. There's so many, that verse is really loaded that we're gonna, as we're going to be going through this. And we're going to primarily look at I am the way tonight. That's what we're going to look at, what it means for Jesus as I am the way. But keep that in mind then when Jesus says I am the way. This is something new. Every, all these things he's saying in, in the upper room, upstairs room, they're all new things. So if we look in ex, uh, Exodus 25, Exodus 25, and let's go to verse uh, 8. Exodus 25, I've got a couple verses here in Exodus 25 I want to look at. Verse 8, and this is God speaking to Moses. Back in verse 1, it says the Lord spoke to Moses. And then in verse 8, he says, And they will construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. So this was a place where God was going to dwell. Look down in verses 21 and 22. And you shall put the covering place, mercy seat, a lot of your Bibles have, but the covering place on top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony, which I shall give to you. That's going to be the tables of the, of the law. And there I will meet with you. Notice there, that at the ark, that's where I will meet with you. From above the covering place, from between the two cherubs, which are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. So, where was God going to be meeting with Israel? Or Moses, really? In the Holy of Holies, above that ark. Very good. Let's go um, to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Wait. What? Did he, was this just a one-time meeting? No, remember, you've been going through this. He met with Moses yeah. many times. Yeah. Because so, he's giving the uh, law through Moses. This was a Clayton question. Yeah. Oh, it's been a while. I thought only the high priest. We've been listening. <laughs> it's, it's been a couple months ago. Only the high priest could go in there once a year. That's right. The high priest could do that once all of this was established. But while God was giving the law, oh, he was giving it through Moses. And so he remember it said Moses would stand at the doorway and God would come and speak with him like face to face. But he also met with him there in that place. It seemed like somewhere when they went into Holy of Holies once a year, they would tie a rope around his foot. Yeah, that's just in case yeah. he was 
did see God. Unholy yes. And die. Yeah. yeah. That's right. <laughs> so Deuteronomy chapter 12. <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord your Lord, the God of your fathers, has given to you to possess as long as you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, and on the high mountains, and on the hills, and under every green tree. And you shall tear down their altars, smash their pillars, burn their asherim with fire, and you shall cut down the engraved images of their gods, and you shall obliterate their name from that place. And you shall not act like this toward the Lord your God. Now, um, one of the translations I was reading from earlier today, I think it was the New King James, they say, you shall not worship the Lord your God like this. But literally, it's, you shall not do toward your God like this. So they weren't supposed to do what these other people did. Verse 5, But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God shall choose from all the tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. There you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your vow offerings, your freewill offering, and the firstborn from your herd and of your flock. There also you and your households shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertaking in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So he tells them they are not to go just anywhere, like, in other words, when they entered the land, I think this would have been an interesting thing, right? If you went into the land, every time you had a, a mountain or a high hill, you would look around and you'd see altars built on all these hills all through the countryside. And you'd see these these wooden these wooden poles that they'd put up, and then they'd have the, the asherim. They're pretty sure that they were females. The wooden poles were representative of the male god. And the asherim were, were female images in some way around, that they put around. And they'd put these up on these hills. And so you'd come around, you'd see them up there. You'd see the altar. You'd see them over here. And you tell them you can't do that. This is not the way God's going to have you. You don't go up and just set up an altar on any hill you want and start worshiping God like they do. Don't do that. They were supposed to do what? Specific. Go where the tent was. He says, I'm going to choose a place from all the tribes. Where did he end up choosing that place from? In. Ended up, yeah. yeah, it ended up coming to Jerusalem eventually. That's exactly. Uh, and it makes, what? Initially it was in Shiloh, which was uh, north and west of Jerusalem. What was the sacrificing They served a lot of different purposes, but one of the things is those offerings, that was a way that they could approach God. And I was trying to find this verse about a month or so ago when I was working on something that it says you should, and it's, I think I took it out of context when I was thinking about it, but I went back, but it, you're not supposed to appear before the Lord empty-handed. In other words, when he appeared before God to talk with him, they normally brought some sort of an offering. It might just be flour mixed with oil. You know, it might be an animal that they slay. It might be... I don't know, something else that they brought. But they brought these various offerings and sacrifices. Is it accurate that the first time they came, they burned it all up totally, but they didn't always burn it up? Oh, their offerings? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, because some of the offerings, Peg and I were just reading that yesterday, some of the offerings, 
a, the priest took a portion of it. Part of it was burned, and then per, the person that offered it, he took part of it. Which, and maybe we don't get that in our culture, uh, or the way we do church. Let's talk about that, the way the church is set up. We don't think about the fact that you eat something that you offer to God. But by eating part of it, you're kind of saying, in some way or another, I'm sharing in this con this communication with God because I'm partaking of this. The priest gets some of it, God takes some of it, I take some of it in this, uh, in that. And I don't think they didn't do that with sin offerings and such, but they did that when they brought a, their sacrifice for sin, they didn't, but when they brought other offerings, such as they're going to make a vow or that word contribution or free will offering, just it's not required of you. It's just, I just want to bring an offering to God. So this is the way they approach God. So they, were, so they were more like happy about it? They were just really like trying to just like share with him? Some people were happy about it. Some people I don't suppose were, because if you sinned and you had to bring a sacrifice with regard to your sin, you probably weren't too happy about that. Other than that, well, by doing that, you hopefully were getting yourself out of trouble. But uh, this is actually really important to kind of what we're looking at here tonight in John 14, 6, is that we don't have to go through all of that. We don't have to find a specific place on this earth to go to. So, any other questions here? Okay, let's go over to the book of 1 Kings. First right, Kings chapter 8. At that time, he's talking about the tent. We popularly, we still use the old, it's the only time we, I think we use the old English word tabernacle is when we come to that. But that word in Hebrew, as well as in the New Testament, is simply the word tent. And we're, it's amazing, we have modern translations and they still use the word tabernacle. <laughs> I don't know if they think that that's special, but it just means a tent. But when we come to 1 Kings chapter 8, we have the, the dedication of the temple under Solomon, the temple that Solomon built. Remember, David collects a lot of the building materials and gets a lot of that arranged. And then when Solomon comes along, he finishes up the details and he builds this, this temple for God. And when they dedicate it, if you look in verse, uh, let's go to verse 28. 1 Kings 8, verse 28. 8, 1 Kings 8, 28 and 29. It says, yet have regard, this is, this is um, Solomon talking to God, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today, that your eyes may be opened toward this house night and day, toward the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, or to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. In verse 30, and to listen to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel, when they pray toward this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place, here and forgive. So once the temple is built, the temple replaces the tent. Now they're going to go to the building. And what's Solomon saying? The people were going to pray toward the temple. Because where was God? He says, heaven is your dwelling place. In fact, he actually asked that in the opening statement in verse 27. But but God came down and made his presence known. Remember what happened in the temple when they dedicated the, both the tabernacle and the temple? 
God's glory came down and filled it, and people had to leave because it was too much for them to handle. They couldn't be in that same place. And so he says, now, this is where we know you are. So we're going to pray. Pray towards this location. Pray towards this building. This is what the people were going to do. And God, he's asking God, you listen. Listen to our prayers. So this is the way it was from 1500 B.C. till the time that the church starts. So that's 1500 years in that space of time in there, a little over 1500 years in that space of time in there. This is what people did when they wanted to talk to God. They were supposed to come either to that tent or they were supposed to come or pray towards that temple. Remember? Didn't that tent was in Jerusalem? It was in Jerusalem, yeah. Remember when Daniel is taken away to Babylon and under Darius they try to set a trap for him. And what is what is what did he do? He prays towards Jerusalem. Plays towards Jerusalem. The temple doesn't even exist. The temple's been torn down. It's a pile of rubble. The city's estate is in a state of rubble. But he still prays in that direction. That's still where he prays. And they catch him uh, doing that exactly. Be because if you read this here in 1 Kings, and if you go over to 2 Chronicles, where you have a, a little bit fuller rendition of what Solomon says, you find out that this is what they were to do if they got in trouble and they were taken away to another land. They were supposed to pray towards that place, which is what Daniel was doing. So now, with that in mind, let's go over to John chapter 16, so does that 14. Mean like Jesus was a physical church? Like, at the beginning, before he passed away? Because now, like, he's more of a, like, a spiritual church? Because didn't they pray towards the church, and then they would go up to the Father? Well, no, um... Or what they did was say, this is Israel, the people of Israel. This is before the church exists. So the church doesn't start until we get to the day of Pentecost. Uh, day of Pentecost. This is, so Jesus dies, like this week that we're going on. Jesus died, probably on a Wednesday, but we're not here to fight that battle tonight. Probably on a Wednesday. He rises sometimes after the sun goes down on Saturday night. So sometimes after 6 p.m. on Saturday, Jesus rises from the dead. And... It's going to be about 50 days after that, <coughs> excuse me, about 50 days after that, that Jesus has ascended back to heaven and he sends the Spirit and the church starts. The church Rather begins. Then ascend on the 40th day and then 10 days later. Yeah, it's about 10 days later, yeah, because yeah. he says he's with us for about 40 days. So, yeah, so, so Jesus wasn't a church. Um, Israel had a building. They had a building that was there, and that building had been torn down. And after the Babylonian captivity, they come back, and they rebuild that. And then Herod, that's alive when, when uh, Jesus is born, that Herod had spent a fortune beautifying the temple, fixing it up, giving it a little remodel, a facelift, street appeal, right, or whatever they call that. Curb appeal. Curb appeal, yeah. So that was a temple, not a church. It was. We have buildings today. They're not churches. The church is the people. That's right. The church is the people. We call the building the church, but it ain't the church. It's just a place where we meet. In fact, but I was... Then they would pray towards the building, right? Israel did. Okay. Israel did. Because that's where it that's was a temple, saying. because yeah. that's where God uh, made his residency yeah. Yeah. known. Right. And that's why they called it a sanctuary. But we don't we don't have a sanctuary. Our bodies are a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. 
but that building down there is not a sanctuary. Yeah. It's just a convenient meeting hall. That's big enough for all of them. Yeah. People still pray to that? Like, People people do, but they're wrong to do so because there's there's no there's no value or benefit in praying towards any building. There's no temple. That's right. We actually we all of the believers together we all make up the temple of God today. We're living stones fitted in there, right? And the Bible even says that there will be a day where we no longer pray towards Jerusalem in John four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's go to John 14, verse 6 then. John 14, verse 6. I think I said 16 when I was telling you to turn over there, but I was wrong. I'm getting my 4 and my 6 mixed up. John 14, verse 6. And this comes, remember the question that, that came out of the end, in the end of chapter 13 was Jesus says, I'm going away. And then he says, but you're not going to follow. And this upsets them. So he says in verse 1, don't let your heart be troubled. He talks about uh, places in his father's house, and he's going to prepare one, and I'm going to come back and get you. And verse 4, and he says, and where I go, you know the way. And Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you go. So how are we able to know the way? In other words, we don't know where you're going. Now, I think one of the things you need to keep in mind is none of these disciples were expecting Jesus to go back to heaven. They were expecting him to take care of the Romans and go set up his throne there, hopefully there in Jerusalem, and start reigning. This is what they were expecting, right? Because he was rightfully the king, and that's what they expected him to do. But he is going to go back to heaven because he's not going to reign until out in the future yet. And so they're, they're not getting, where are you going? So how would we know the way? Because we don't know where you're going. And this brings us to verse 6, where Jesus says to him, I am the way. And this is one of those I am statements. Right out of uh, Exodus chapter 3, where, he, where Moses says, Hey, when I go back to the children of Israel, the sons of Israel, and they ask, who sent you? What, what am I telling them your name is? And he says, tell them, I am has sent you. Now, the, the Jews, or Moses, never said, I am, <laughs> because it wasn't him. He would have said, the one who is. <laughs> that's the way they would have described God. And I always think that's something to really think about, this every time they uttered God's name, if they named the name that we popularly say Jehovah, some people say Yahweh, it was always, it was always, the, to them it meant the one who exists, not the one who was, not the one who will be, the one who just exists, unchanging. That was a pretty, pretty interesting name. So he says, I am, there we go. So I am would technically be God. Yeah, that's what he's doing. He Jesus is calling himself God. This is an this is this yeah. This is one of the many places in the Gospel of John where Jesus is identifying himself as God. And every time he does, well, not every time, but several of times he does, the Jews understand it and they try to kill him. But he goes on here, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we're going to, tonight, just as I already said, look at the first part of it, the way. The way. And I... and. My personal, this is my personal opinion on this, and you may disagree with me on this. I really think primarily when he says, I am the way, that he's primarily looking at 
something that is part of our present Christian life. But I really think to all three of these, there's an element of all three parts of our salvation, our past, our present, and our future. He's the way in the past, in the present, and the future. So let's take a look at the past. I think I think these are also embedded in this, but they're not the, I don't think they're the main the main focus. So let's go back or let's go over to Romans, excuse me. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We're going to go to verse 21 when you get there. Romans 3:21. It says, "But now a righteousness of God has been made visible apart from or separate from law, one that has been witnessed by the law and the prophets. It's God's kind of righteousness, which is through faith concerning Jesus Christ to all the ones believing there's no difference. So what he says there in verse 22 is that you and I, come into a relationship with God in which there's righteousness. We actually get to have God's kind of righteousness there in verse 22. We get to have God's kind of righteousness, and it's through faith concerning Christ. We believe in Christ, and we get righteousness from God. Jesus is the way for us to achieve righteousness. Go over to chapter 4 here in Romans. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And uh, verse 1, Therefore, what shall we say? How was how Abraham our forefather found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was declared righteous from works, then he has a boast. In other words, if his righteousness before God was from works, he'd have a boast. But not, not towards or facing God. Not by works facing God. Rather, what it's going to be... Uh, as we just saw in the last passage, that that righteousness comes by faith concerning Christ Jesus. Now, that's for us. For him, it was just faith in God at that time. He's not believing in Jesus Christ in the way that we do today. Abraham was a long time before Jesus Christ came into the world, became man, died on the cross for our sins, and rose again. We're all agreed on that, right? This is That's not what Abraham was believing back there at that time. Um, let's go... I want you to go over to Acts chapter 10. Was he believing that he was like a prophet? Or? No, what, what Abraham had, what Abraham, God made a simple promise to Abraham over in Genesis um, 15. He told Abraham, he says, if you can count the stars, you'll be able to count your kids. You're going to have that many kids. And Abraham's, descendants. your descendants, yeah. And Abraham doesn't have any kids yet. And he's 75 years old when God makes that promise to him. 75 years old, and he has no kids yet. And uh, so how in the world is he going to be able to have all these descendants? But he believes God. He believes God. And God counts that faith in this promise for which there's no evident proof. There's no good reason for Abraham to say, oh, yeah, this is going to happen. Oh, sure. In fact, in Romans 4, it says that he was good as dead. Yeah. Sexually. Yeah. Yeah, he was. And that's late. That's even later. That even comes even after all this time. 25 years. He didn't have any kids for 25 years after that. Or not the promise. promise. So, Acts chapter 10. 
Acts chapter 10, and um, uh, where there's a lot of stuff going on in here. But uh, let's go to let's go to verse 38. Verse 38, it says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And it's called Jesus, so he's emphasizing his human nature here. Jesus, remember, is a person who also is God, but he also is a man as Jesus. So God the Father is with his human nature. Jesus isn't just relying on his own power. He could, but that wasn't God's will. Anyway, so I'm just trying to clarify this. Okay, verse 39. We, Peter's speaking here, we are witnesses of all that he did both in Judea and Jerusalem. Remember, Peter was one of the disciples, went all over. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and allowed him to be to appear, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses, ones who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him, that is, believes in Jesus, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. How does a person receive forgiveness? Through his name. They believe. They believe in Jesus Christ. Okay, so Jesus is this for, is so far again. He's the way, the way that a person enters into this relationship with God. Turn to chapter thirteen in the same book. Chapter thirteen. We're going to read a little bit less. Paul's going to go over some of the same things Peter did. So we're going to kind of just put in down here, and uh, it's talking about his death, and then verse thirty-seven, whom. This is talking about Jesus who has died, whom God raised, that is raised from the dead. He'd experienced no decay, okay? He experienced no decay. Let it be known to you, therefore, my brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by this Jesus, everyone who believes is declared righteous from all the sins from which you could not be declared righteous by the law of Moses. In other words, you could keep all that law and you could never be declared righteous before God. And that when we looked at that first over there in Romans, before God, that's that pros God that we have in John 1 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was pros, facing God. And uh, I ended up going, I think I maybe mentioned this last week in Bible study, but man, I, that kind of caught my attention. For some reason, last week, I ended up chasing that down. All the places where you have pros used by him of Jesus facing the Father, facing the Father, facing the Father. And you don't have that with other people, with Jesus facing other people, I think, except maybe one time. It's always God, the Father. And we get to come into that relationship where we are righteous before the Father, before or by faith concerning Christ. So, our past. That's what happened at the moment we, we got saved. Every last one of us, whenever that happened in our life. I was five years old when it happened for me. Peggy was 16 years old when it happened to her. It happened to my mom, I think, was 12 or something like that, or 14, I don't know. My dad was in college. It happens at different times for different people that they hear that they're a sinner. They hear Christ died for their sins, that he was buried, he rose again, and they realize that they're saved by believing that alone. 
They're not saved by joining a church. They're not saved by being good. They're not saved by baptism. They're saved by believing in Christ, period. That settles it. And they're righteous before God. They're forgiven and they're righteous before God. So Jesus is the way. He's the one that won the salvation. We have to believe through him into that righteousness and that forgiveness, or that forgiveness and righteousness isn't the more I, proper I, order. I, I keep thinking of Acts 4. I think it's Acts 4.12. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Again, Jesus is the way. That's right. That's right. Thank you. So, that's the initial salvation. Now let's talk about our part of how some of our present tense salvation, that is what we call growing, maturing. How does this take place? And there's a lot of different things that, that go on in this. And uh, I'm, we could spend, I could spend a lot of time on this. In fact, I've got more notes than I actually intend uh, to, to cover. But I want you to go over to Hebrews chapter 7. And this would just be one example. And this, the, this is the very reason we went over to the passage in Exodus, Deuteronomy, and uh, 1 Kings. So if you go over to Hebrews chapter 7 and you go down to verse 25. Now just to set a little background, it's something that I think all of us know. Paul is writing here, or at least we believe this to be Paul, probably with good reason. Paul is writing to a group of Christians that are Jewish. And, and because of problems and persecutions, these Jews want to withdraw from the church, and they just want to go to temple. This is kind of surprising for us, but when this happens, this is happening around six, or 57, get the right year, about 57 or 58 AD. So that means we're like, what are we? We're like 27 years after the time that Christ died and rose again and ascended on high. And yet these Jews are still going to the temple. I think lots of Christians have never thought about the fact these Jews are still going to the temple and they're still bringing all the offerings and all the sacrifices and all of this stuff. And now they're cut off. Now they're not able to do this. And they're wondering, now what do we do? How do we talk to God now? Because they don't know what you and I take for granted. Is there a one of us in here that thinks that we need to pray, go, go to a specific building and pray? No. We think we can pray when we're driving down the road in our car. We can go climb up Saddle Mountain out here on a nice day, preferably not a snowy day. And we can climb up there and we can pray while we're walking. We can pray laying on our back in bed. We can do all this kind of communication with God. But the Jews didn't do that. Remember, they had to come to the temple. And so he makes this statement in verse 25. 7.25, Hebrews 7.25. Hebrews 7, 25, and verse 24 at the end says that he has an unchangeable or unviolable, I think I said that right, unviolable priesthood, from which he is able to save to full maturity. That word that's translated all end, he's, he's able to save us fully to maturity. He's able to really mature us. He doesn't just get us there a little bit mature, but we're still in the nursery. We don't just get to first grade. He really can mature believers, is the point here. Uh, he's able to do that. Those who are coming through him to God, seeing that he always lives to make intercession on our behalf. 
a believer that does not ever come to God, that never, and what, he, what does he mean by coming to God? What's that mean? What? No, it's not what this means. Oh, no. this is Hebrews. Not, um, sacrifices. If you're a Hebrew, okay. doing it with that. Okay, line. he's, okay, let's let's back up and ask the question another way. He's writing to Christ, people that are already Christians. Mm -hmm. So how do Christians, what, Christ, what does it mean when it says Christ, Christians come Christ. to God? Prayer. It's talking about prayer. Okay. It's talking about they come and take time, time and talk to God. People that don't ever talk to God, if you're saved, and you heart, you really don't talk to God. You gotta wonder what's what's going on. Why don't you talk to God? Why don't you take time and come and talk to God? And when we come and talk to God, He says we come through Him. That is through Jesus Christ. We approach God through, because remember, where did the Son sit down? Here's the Father. Where did the Son go when He ascended? Right so He's sitting right here. So pretend I'm the Father. Here's the Son sitting. If you went into heaven today. Jesus is sitting there in a real human body. He's still God who is everywhere, but there's a real human body sitting on God's throne at God's right hand. And we, where does God count all of us to be? His right hand. At his right hand, because he counts us to be in Christ. So we're on the throne, in the throne room. That's right. So when we talk to God, it's like we're... Just turning to our left and addressing the Father. And what's through cool about that is that when people would come and have access to a king, they would stand before the throne, not on the throne at the right hand. You know, that's intimate. Just seemed like couldn't even see them. Yeah. I wonder if maybe that's another part of the reason. Not you say put it that way. If that's another reason why he calls it the throne of grace, because we're not just kneeling, groveling on the floor before the king. We're actually sitting there. <laughs> wow. That's actually a really good point. Thank you, Josh. So we're approaching God, but we come to God through Christ. Every time, every time we as believers talk to God, technically, we are doing it because we have the right to come to God because God sees us in Christ. We're, come, we're not just stopping in who we are in Christ. It's like we're proceeding through Christ to talk to the Father. Does that make sense? Yeah, through the veil. He's the veil. Yeah, he's the veil. Remember, they had to pull the veil aside to get into that back room. We're coming through him. He's figuratively our veil. Exactly. And Paul says that later on in Hebrews chapter 10. His flesh, his, his body, body is the veil through which we come. There's a lot of stuff loaded in this, but I think that that's sufficient. That and that... Um, let's let's put it this way. There's there's another element of this that we're going to come back to uh, next time we're together, where we're going to look at the truth. Jesus says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." And what is it that Jesus is the truth? Well, it's actually it's related to this very. It's actually related to this very statement right here. It's the fact that you know you cannot grow and mature apart from the person of Jesus Christ and the fact that God sees you in Christ and in Christ you died to the sin nature you were buried and you rose again and you can abide there in him but that's a whole other part of the upper room but that'll be that'll tie into that so there's just make a connection here for us and what we're doing we're coming to God 
And we have spent, I don't know, several years ago, I don't remember how long ago, but we did a whole study on our ability to have access to God. We went through a ton of different scriptures on that, that we have access to God. I'm never worthy. I'm never worthy of myself to come to God. I am worthy because I'm in Christ. Even when I act down here, when I act naughty, guess what? In Christ, I'm always worthy to talk to God. Because that's the way God sees me. That's the way God sees you as a believer in Christ. And that is how we mature. That's how we grow and mature. And so there's several times here in the book of Hebrews that he calls these people to draw near, to come near, in uh, all of these different things. So um, I want to look at one other verse with regard to this before we move on. And I want to go back to Romans chapter 5. I was looking at this one early, uh, earlier. This is a verse that I, I think, the way I've heard this taught over the years, we're going to roll Romans 5.1. The way I've heard this taught, I don't think a lot of people understand the significance of what Paul is saying in this verse. Because this is, this is, the, way, this is the way I was taught verse 1. And you, you listen, you tell me if this is the way you understand it. Therefore, being justified... By faith, we no longer are at war with God. The war is done through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we were sinners and we were warring against God. Which is true. That is true. We were at war. The Bible says that, we were, that when you're unsaved, the unsaved mind is hostile to God. And you go, I don't remember thinking bad thoughts against God. You know, anytime you think you can do whatever you want, or you figured that you could try to make God just happy by your own efforts, that all of that was offensive to God, and we were fighting against him. But that's not really what this verse is saying. That's part of it, but we're, we're missing the punch. This verse is saying because we have been justified, because we now sit by God in the person of Christ, and we are righteous there from faith, we have peace Facing, there's that process again. Facing God, what are we doing? Turning to our left. Yeah, we're turning to our left. This is another talking to God. This is another access to God verse. And when we access God, God doesn't look at us and say, "Well, you're my enemy. I'm not talking to you." It's not what He's doing. He treats us with peace. And now, when we talk to God, which is what He actually says in verse 22, through whom we have access. And that word have access literally is we have been granted access. It's a perfect tense verb, have have the access. We have. So we have in the past with the result that we still have this access to God. And we have it because of the grace in which we stand. So it's not like we were gaining access. It's been granted to us already. We've had it. You Romans, listen to this. We already have access, Paul says. And there's no... There's no fight when we're talking to God now as believers. That's not the way God sees it. Can I comment? Please. All creation, God is at peace with because of the cross work of Christ. That's part of reconciliation, right? So when this is stated this way, it's really believer-centric. From our perspective, we have peace. Not only at salvation, but then I think the next verse really addresses the going forward. Because you have this, and you're there, and there's peace towards God from your perspective, 
Now, if you stay and act on it, why wouldn't you? It's like the door's open. The door's open a little bit. Run in, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and the peace really, as you're saying, is believer-centric here. The peace, peace really means something to us because if your unsaved neighbor is having problems in their life and they cry out to God going, Oh, I can't get along with my wife, or I can't handle my kids, or my job's too hard, or my car's giving whatever thing they cry out to, to God about. Is God listening to them? No. But he listens to us because God is not, because we're not at war with God either. We actually have, we possess this peace, whereas God deals with those people in peace. God isn't just striking them down left and right. Don't talk to me, lightning bolt. He doesn't do that. That's not the way God is, as Josh was saying. He, because of reconciliation, he's already settled that issue. But you and I really get to enjoy a, a level of peace they don't even get to experience in the way we come to God. So thank you, Josh. Appreciate that. So that has to do with our present tense salvation, our access to God. The significance of that, and a few years ago when we talked about biblical prayer communication, one of the things we noticed was that the word that is the most common of all the words is the word that's translated pray or prayer. And that's a word that would be off most time, most of the time that word in English in the New Testament refers to worship. And worship we direct only at only God. And yet worship, worship is one of those things that I, I hope we don't do it, but it's really easy to go, oh, we think about our position in Christ. But worship is also a really key facet of the way you and I function. That we think, God, you are so good and gracious. And that position we have up there over in Ephesians 2, Paul says, that's, that's an expression of God's kindness. <laughs> He's showing us grace by showing how kind he is to us, which is really an amazing thing to think about. And so there's worship that goes on as we're thinking about our God that is granting us this great salvation. And that's an important part of maturing, an important part of maturing. A couple weeks ago when we're dealing with the whole sewer line thing at our house and things like that, and I'm crawling around in the dirt underneath my house and banging my head every once in a while because I have no sense of where I am in the world, and I'm kind of klutzy that way, there's a couple times that I just started kind of getting, and then it was just like, I was like, you know what, God, but you're, you are always better than all of this. And I just started thinking about who God was and thinking about where God really sees me, that even though I'm crawling in there, he sees me at the Father's right hand. And I'm thinking about how kind he is and gracious to extend on it. It was just amazing, even though you're chiseling away in the dirt down there and it's kind of, um, there's a level that which is miserable. There's another level. It's like, this is, this is, this is what you're, allowing me to do today. This is not the way I was going to spend my day, but that's okay. How many of you, and your day ends up going a direct direction you weren't expecting? Every day. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's really easy to, well, maybe you're accustomed to it, but I think even though you're accustomed to it, it's not fun, right? You're always like, oh, yeah. And we can face the day like that, or we can come to it and say, you know what, God, you've got things planned for me, things I didn't plan. But you planned them for me because you're helping me grow. And again, so that's part of this whole maturing process, God growing us. The last part of this that I want to look at then before we 
Yeah, he just keeps working. As long as, I always look at it this way: as long as you're breathing the air down here, as long as he hasn't taken you home, he's still giving you another day, another moment to grow a little bit more, to mature a little bit more. Yeah. So we're always going to keep growing and maturing. I, some of you guys know John Larson. Used to go to church here many years ago, and and he and I were out. We got done bailing one afternoon, out out of town, out here. We were standing at the back of his truck, and talking, and he was talking about something that he'd been going through. And he says, he made this comment because I it was really interesting because I had been thinking the exact same thing just like the day before, and he says, you know, I was going through this thing and I was having to think about this with God. And I was thinking, God, haven't I already learned this lesson? Didn't you already teach this? Why am I having to do this all over again? And then I realized, it's not like you learn the lesson once and then you graduate and go to the next class and you don't do it anymore. When you learn to add, subtract, multiply, or divide, you're going to use those no matter what level of math you get to, right? Those things are, and that's the way it is learning, learning these things in the Christian life is you're going to continue to enjoy these benefits but you're always going to be growing more consistent in that. Uh, I, this isn't true of me all the time, but I can honestly say I'm happy that I've got, I would say, more days that I really enjoy and appreciate what God's doing than days that I grump and grouse. <laughs> I'm thankful for that because I'm like, God, because what it just reminds me is, God, you really are growing me, just like you said. And I can kind of, I can see that because there sometimes, as, even as a pastor, I used to think, I don't think I'm really growing because I just grump and grouse too much. And I may not have done it to anybody else, but a lot of times God knew I was grumping and grousing. So that's just a, a small example on the side. So the last part of this, does that answer your question enough? Thank you. Okay. So last part of this, the last thing we're going to look at is with regard to the, the fact that he's the way, not just the way that we come to salvation, by believing in him, not just the way that we approach God and are able to mature and grow through him, but how we're going to finish. And we actually had it in the verse we just looked at the last couple weeks back there. Look back in John chapter 14 again. In verse 3, John 14 verse 3 says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will receive you to myself in order that where I am, you may also be. He's going to come back and get us. We don't run off to him. He comes and gets us. Do you remember the, do you remember the, the sign he did back in John chapter 6? There's the feeding of the 5,000, and then he goes up on the mountain and he tells his disciples to do what? Get in a boat and cross the lake. And they went in this headwind. You ever feel like that's what the Christian life is? It's like rowing into a, head, a headwind. You ever rowed into a headwind? I think I told you this story before, but I took my daughter, one of my daughters and my niece, out on a lake out in Michigan once many years ago. This is like 1998 or 1999. And we got out on the lake, and we were doing fine out there. And while we headed back, all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, this wind just, we're, we're turning around. We're doing fine. We're making good 
And these are small girls. So their rowing strength is like, <laughs> you know, in the kayak. And this wind comes at us, comes on. And, and I'm like, I'm like, come on, girls, paddle. <laughs> and we're just like, I honestly think we're going backwards, even though I'm paddling for all I'm worth. This headwind was so strong. I ended up actually having to get it over closer to the shore and jump out and pull the kayak, pull the girls back in because, oh, the wind was so strong. But that's maybe, a, I would think when you come over there to John 6, that's a metaphor for what the Christian life sometimes looks like, is that we're heading in the direction that, that God sends us, but we don't make, we don't get all the way there. We're trying, but we're just like into a headwind. And what does Jesus do? He just comes walking on the water. And when he gets in the boat, this is how the sign in John is different than the other four Gospels. The other four Gospels all talk about the great calm. What happens in John 4, or John 6, excuse me? The boat is, the boat is immediately there. That's the rapture. When Jesus comes for us, we're immediately where we're supposed to be. He comes and gets us. He says there in John 4, verse 3, he says that I'm coming again to receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. 14.3. What did I say? 4.3. Yeah, 14.3. Thank you. He's going to come and get us. Let's go over to 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians chapter one. If we go to verse 10, First Thessalonians one and verse 10, this is one of the things that these people were doing. Let's go back to verse nine just so you can see. For they, that is all these other people, report concerning us what sort of a entrance or welcome or approach we had to you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Remember, the Thessalonians were, were Greek people. They were Macedonians, te technically, but they were worshipers of idols. And when they heard the gospel, they turned and they believed in God. And so not only did they do that, but they also then not only served the living God, but to await his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, the one rescuing us, from the wrath that is coming. God is bringing wrath in the future. He's bringing his anger upon the earth to judge the earth in anger. And he says, we, well, we should be, the Thessalonians were, we like them should be waiting for him to come to get us, to rescue us from that coming wrath. Not rescue us out of the coming wrath. But to keep us, we're not going into that wrath. In fact, he tells us that over in Revelation chapter 3. We could have gone back over to Romans 5, 9. He says he's also, we're, we're saved from that wrath through Jesus Christ. He's the one that's actually going to save us from all of this. Any questions here before we move on? Chapter 3. Look at the end of the chapter in chapter 3. That's the first part of the rapture. Rapture means snatching. He comes and he snatches us out of the world. We're snatched up to meet him. He comes to get us. Romans, John 14, 3. He comes to get us, takes to himself. Okay, so the first part, he's taking us. He's rescuing us from that wrath that's coming. 
Then we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And what, is, what does he do with us? It tells us over there in John 14, 3, so that you can be where I am. Where is the son today? He's, he's with the father. And so notice what it says here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And let's just go to verse 13. To establish your hearts blameless in holiness, notice, before God our Father in the coming or the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. When Jesus comes and gets us, he just does, we just don't hang out in the air there and float over the, float over the earth for a while. He takes us, and the end goal is that we all come before the Father. We are before the Father all before the Father, when Jesus is present, we're with him, and it's with all the saints. So Jesus is the way in the fact that he's secured, he's the one that secured what was necessary for our salvation, and so we're saved by faith through him. We're forgiven and we're righteous. Jesus is our way into the presence of God right now to talk with him, to sit there at his right hand, to go there and say, hey, I died with him. I'm buried and I'm risen. I'm free in Christ. That is part of the access into the presence of God. And he is the final access into the presence of God because he's the one that comes down and gets all of us and takes us back up there where the Father is. So he's the, he's the way in my past, in my present, in my future, or I shouldn't be so selfish, in our past, in our present, and in our future. Everybody get that? Okay. Every, yeah, go ahead. So when he takes us, we'll be facing him? We'll we will be facing the Father. He's going to take us, and there, there's, a, there's an image here to kind of to, to explain a little something about what he means when he's talking about before the Father. In, in the weddings in the Middle East, when the groom was ready to get married, they had a, he had a place ready for to bring the bride back to. At the Father's house. At the Father's house. And so he then goes to the house or the place where the, where the bride is living, and he gets her, and he brings her back home with him. There's usually a little, as they get back, there's a parade and everything. This was the way they normally did it. And then he presents, he brings the bride in, and he presents the bride before his father. And the father most likely has already approved of this ahead of time. He probably may, may have even arranged it, which I think is the case in, with us. But he approves of the wedding. And we don't know for sure that they do this, but from what, what we can tell in history, one of the things the father would do, in, and we don't know whether he did that in biblical times, but we know around the time of the Bible that he would have the, 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 groom, the groom and the bride would put their hands together. They'd be holding hands like this or like this, I don't know. And the father would put one hand underneath and one hand on the top. And he would say, I approve of the bride. The, and what does he say about the bride here? Verse 13. We are blameless in holiness. In other words, when the son gets us and presents us before the father, you won't be able to point your finger at any part of the bride, any member of the bride, for anything. And you won't be able to look at any part of the bride and say, well, you know, Holland and Peggy, they're actually doing pretty good. But I don't know about Victor over there. He's still got one eye down there on earth. He's still looking at that. He's still, he's thinking maybe he wants to stay. <laughs> Doesn't happen. We're all set apart. We're all sanctified, right? He sees all of us totally dedicated 
to where God, what God's doing in this case. We're not, there's no division, because right? It's grace and nobody deserves it. That's right. That's right. Because it's what he does. He presents us blameless and holiness. It's not that, it's not that I finally become holy by my efforts. Think of how often as Christians we're like, Oh, cast like Gary was saying tonight when I got here. Christ could come back for us tonight. You cast one eye to heaven, you're like, oh yeah. And then it's like, oh, but I got these things to do down here. Oh, but I could go to heaven. Oh, but this is really fun. You know, you know what I'm saying? It's like we kind of we go back and forth. We're pulled. We're kind of divided at times. Part of the significance of that sanctification or holiness there, you know is that we're going to we'll be completely sold out. We'll be, at that time, completely focused on what we're supposed to be focused on. Not something to really look forward to. So, I had way more verses to go over these things, but I thought I would, thought it'd be nice to give you guys a break and not go an hour and 15 minutes like we have been. <laughs> Does anybody have any other questions? Good set of verses to think about, to stop, you know, when you're talking to people. Maybe you're talking to a, a, a person that's not saved yet, and you share the gospel. Christ died for your sins. He was buried, rose again. Jesus is the way. You could believe. You could believe, and you'd be forgiven and right with God. You could share. That's what they need to hear. Jesus is the way. As Leslie was sharing the verse out of Acts, you know, that there's there's only one name given among men by which it is necessary for us to be saved, Jesus Christ. But then you might be talking to a Christian, and that Christian might be going, oh, man, I'm just a failure, and I'm a struggling. And go in and tell them, you know what? You're always sitting at the Father's right hand. You have access to the Father every day because of who Jesus Christ is. He's your way before the Father. It's not about how good you are. It's about how good he makes you in Christ. That's an eye-opener for a lot of Christians. They've never heard that. And then to stop and think about the fact that, you know, he's coming back. And when he comes back, there's not a one of us that's going to be standing at the back of the line going, oh, keep my head down and don't notice me. I'm such a mess. <laughs> we're all going to be exactly what we're supposed to be, exactly what he made us. So, any other questions or comments? Which would be unblameless. That's right. Yeah. I can't wait to be absolutely blameless. I'm already blameless in Christ, but to actually be completely blameless. 